This edition of the Bio Report is brought to you by the California Technology Council, providing discounts on products and services essential to every startup. For more information, visit californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Concern about the spread of the Zika virus has sparked efforts to develop therapies and vaccines to counter it. But the outbreak reflects a growing threat from zoonotic diseases, once thought of as being contained to tropical regions, that are making incursions into the developed world. We spoke to Jim Panucci, Director for Infectious Disease Research at Southern Research, about Zika, the work his organization is doing around the virus, and whether we need to rethink investment in prevention and treatment of such diseases. Jim, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. We're going to talk about the Zika virus today, the the work you're leading at Southern Research, and why these types of infectious diseases that are transmitted from animals and insects, often thought of as tropical diseases, are increasingly finding their way to the United States. Perhaps, though, we can begin with Southern Research itself, where you just joined. For listeners who may not be familiar with Southern Research, what is it? what does it do, and how is it funded? Yeah, I'm very excited to be a part of Southern Research. This is a great career move for me. It's a great organization. Uh, there are extremely smart and talented scientists here, and there are a lot of great opportunities for Southern's future that I'm very excited to be a part of. In terms of what the organization does, Um, There are four main thrusts. We work in drug discovery, which is discovering cures to treat and prevent diseases. There's drug development, which is providing a continuum of drug development services. That would be, uh, you know, testing a client's product to make sure it works uh, as intended or that it's safe and potent to use uh, in eventual human clinical trials. There's energy and environment where we address critical energy needs and environmental challenges. Uh, and we are at the forefront of a lot of neat and interesting uh, energy technologies. And then there's our engineering group uh, that, that really focuses on solutions to very complex problems. Uh, and as an example of some of their historical work, they've been involved in NASA for many, many years and have done a lot of really great and, and work that, that both the company and the nation should be proud of. And Southern Research is a nonprofit. You operate based on on grants, on contracts? Uh, Yes, a a little bit of both. Uh, We are a contract research organization. So, you know, by definition, it's contracts. uh, And that is either uh, government contracts, uh, you know, state, federal, local, uh, you know, whatever the client need is. And there's a wide range of commercial contracts. Uh, In my department, infectious diseases, we are part of the drug development group, so a lot of our customers are um, pharmaceutical companies, biotech companies, and then government agencies like the National Institute of Health makes up a, a large part of our portfolio. Um, there are parts of the, the Southern that does do grant research, 
Uh, we don't do a whole lot of that, but there are some circumstances where, due to our technical capabilities, we will participate, uh, you know, as partners or co-investors, investigators in grant activities. The Zika virus has been in the news a lot lately. There's been concern about its spread in Florida most recently, where a number of cases have been reported, and there has been local transmission of the disease. What is Zika? Zika is a mosquito-borne virus, right? So you get it uh, primarily through mosquito bites, although uh, one of the things that's interesting about Zika is that it also has a sexual transmission component to it as well, which was a bit of a surprise. Uh, a lot of its near-relative viruses uh, don't uh, necessarily uh, demonstrate that behavior. Uh, so that's something that uh, is making the current uh, Zika outbreak uh, uh, an interesting and, and you know, challenging, uh, you know, uh, um, problem to have to solve. Um, but, uh, you know, it's in the family of the flaviviruses, so it's related to yellow fever and Japanese encephalitis virus, um, West Nile uh, encephalitis virus, which is also present in the United States. So it, there's there's some previous work, you know, that, that in the field of virology where you could learn about viruses of this type and know some things or be able to infer some things about Zika. But Zika was relatively little studied. There wasn't a whole lot done of it, on it. Uh, we know it's been around, you know, you know, for, for many, many years, but, but at least outbreaks have been recorded since the 40s. Um, it's been thought to be relatively benign, but of course the current situation that evolved out of Brazil and, you know, and now moving through the Caribbean, you know, as you noted in Florida, uh, you know, is causing some concern because it's demonstrating some characteristics that have not been observed in the past. And, you know, chief among them is the microcephaly, uh, which is, I think, driving, of course, naturally, a lot of what uh, the, the public, you know, global health reaction to Zika has been. In most cases, people who have contracted Zika will have mild symptoms or even none at all. The exceptions are concerns that Zika can be associated with Guillain-Barre syndrome, a condition in which a person's immune system attacks their nervous system. There are also concerns about pregnant women being exposed to the virus because it can cause microcephaly and other birth defects. How dangerous a disease is this, and does the typical mildness of the disease cause people to treat it less seriously than it should be treated? Yeah, you know, historically, Zika was not, you know, considered very dangerous, you know, certainly compared to uh, its you know, near neighbors like yellow fever, for example, is, is could be very dangerous. Uh, you know, the, the, and, and West Nile can even prove to be fatal in some circumstances as well. Uh, that was not thought to be the case with Zika, and and still Zika doesn't, you know, doesn't not demonstrate those types of lethal properties. Uh, but this business with the microcephaly is very scary, um, and 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 I think that renders Zika, you know, a very dangerous situation, um, particularly as if you know, the, the virus tends to spread geographically, and if there's a sexual transmission component to it, uh, it could it could you know gain hold and, and potentially propagate you know throughout a population. Um, and, and certainly, the microcephaly problem you know causes a lot of attention. Um, it's not just that you get sick, but you you know have a, a lifelong disability. Um, you know that, that's devastating, of course, for the person and, and the parents involved in those situations. So I think where Zika might have not been a concern in the past. It's, it's a big concern now. Uh, so a natural question would be, you know, what happened? Why did Zika suddenly 
you know, start demonstrating this microcephaly effect where, you know, at least that has not been observed uh, in, as, as a problem in the past. Uh, and those are just basic factors. Factors. I don't, you know, the, the scientific world hasn't quite got a complete handle on that yet. But in general, uh, when you see a virus uh, change the way its associated disease manifests itself, it's either, you know, the virus changed, you know, maybe there's a mutation. Uh, you know, there could be environmental factors at play. You know, what else are those people exposed to that may be, you know, working in tandem with the virus to make it worse? Uh, or it could be some sort of genetic background or predisposition in a, you know, population that makes it more susceptible or a combination of all those things together could result in, in a, you know, infection characteristic that has not been previously observed. Southern Research is working in several areas around Zika. I thought maybe we could walk through those. You sure. developed cell assays for Zika. What's the significance of that? Yeah, so the, the assays that we are developing are plaque reduction neutralization titers. And that would be a way to test uh, how well a vaccine may be working. So if you uh, were to get to the point where uh, Zika is in human clinical trials, you would inoculate people, they would develop antibodies, and then you would use those antibodies, um, you know, as a, as a is a challenge against the virus to see if those antibodies are strong enough, potent enough, and bind tight enough to stop the virus from working in these cell-based assays. So you would have a Petri dish of cells, uh, you would mix virus and antibody together, try to get the uh, virus to infect those cells, and wherever it did, it would make a sort of hole in the, in the layer of cells on the Petri dish, and you'd be able to observe those. Those are called plaques. Uh, if the antibody is working well, you would see less plaques. If the antibody is working not so well, you'd see more. Um, and then as a result of that, we could, you know, you, you'd know whether uh, you were on the right track for a vaccine. So it's an important assay to have, uh, something that Southern is very good at, at performing. You're also working to develop animal models that can be used to support the development of a vaccine. Where is that work today? Yes, uh, we've made great progress on that. We are. Uh, working on three different animal models, uh, one of which Southern Research invested in on itself. That was a uh, macaque, phenomologous uh, um, macaque, uh, a non-human primate model uh, to study Zika. We were also funded by the National Institute of Health to work on a rhesus macaque uh, model. Um, and and you would want two different models because uh, you, you know, when you develop an animal model, it's one thing just to inject virus and look for an effect, but you really want to be able to characterize the entire course of disease, you know, toxicologically, uh, you want to know, you know, molecularly, uh, you know, physiologically, all the different ways you can, you can analyze the impact of that, that virus or that disease on the animal. So you could then crosswalk that to the, to the same infections in humans. So the, the more you can characterize the impact of the virus on the animal and relate it to the human circumstance, the more reliable the model is. Some models are better than others, and sometimes you uh, need more than one because the model is never perfect, and there may be aspects where you would test it in one species because it demonstrates a certain characteristic uh, that's not present in another, but in the other species that may, you know, be advantageous there. Uh, we are also working on a mouse model. Uh, and it's also important uh, because, you know, it's a lot more cost-effective than non-human primates. 
uh, you can get a lot more throughput, uh, and there's still things to be learned at that sort of scale of animal as well. And are you doing any work to directly develop a drug or vaccine for Zika? Uh, Southern is at this point uh, helping the Zika vaccine world uh, through a commercial contract that we have to to look at uh, the impacts of a vaccine. That's where our cell-based uh, activity comes in. Uh, how challenging a virus is Zika? How, how well understood is it? The handle in the lab, uh, my, my crew tells me that it's relatively well behaved. Uh, it's not a particularly tricky virus, you know, to conduct experiments with, which is good. Uh, in terms of what's known about it, uh, like I said earlier, it's, it's relatively unstudied. Um, and certainly, you know, the scientific community is making up a lot of ground now. Um, but because its near neighbors have been studied for decades, there's at least a baseline of, you know, reasonably close data that you could at least know how to form big experiments around. Uh, there's some expectations you might have uh, based on other viruses that are related that you could at least know whether you might be on the right track or not. So there's, there's some helpful hints out there, but yeah, still a lot of uh, hard work needs to be done for Zika. The recent experience with Ebola comes to mind with regard to challenges developing drugs and vaccines in response to a viral outbreak. We've seen in these types of outbreaks that viruses either burn themselves out or become contained. Developing drugs and vaccines take time. How easy is it to sustain these efforts once the threat from a virus like this subsides? Well, that's always a challenge and certainly driven by the availability of resources. Uh, you know, we're fortunate that, you know, we live in a world where there's a, a, a you know, a tremendous amount of scientific capability uh, and capacity as well. Uh, there, there's labs, researchers, doctors, scientists, you know, worldwide that are able to contribute uh, and all very excited to do so. It's just a matter of whether industry and government has the resources to look at it all. Um, you know, that has to be racked and stacked in comparison to other diseases. I mean, cancer, heart disease, diabetes, HIV, malaria, tuberculosis are all still, you know, big global health issues that require resources. And then, you know, you've got regular society things like new roads, new bridges, and so forth that all need, you know, financial attention, right? Everybody's got to work in concert for all the things that it takes to, to run a civilization. But when you have outbreaks like Ebola or like Zika, you know, they do require some immediate attention. And there's things that are learned along the way. Uh, and things that, that, you know, you have to prioritize. I know that the work in Ebola is still continuing. Um, and it's important, too, because it, there was things that were learned in the last, in the most previous uh, Ebola outbreak, such that it lingers in the body in a lot of cases. And, you know, it's not just, you know, you, you get better or you don't, and then it's gone. It's persisting in the population, which means that at any time you could have another outbreak, another flare-up of disease. So, you know, in this time when Ebola occurred, it was in a largely urban population, and we saw how quickly uh, it spread and how difficult it was to get under control. And there were so much more, many more people around, uh, and so much more opportunity for the virus to spread. So that that's one that you know you, you can't let slide because there's other you know emergent medical priorities or global health priorities. You've got to get a handle on that so you don't run into that situation you know chronically and frequently. 
Um, but, you know, it's still being worked on, and there's, you know, Ebola has been, um, you know, a focus of study for a lot of years. Zika is kind of in the same situation. You know, it'd be great if there was a vaccine um, developed. Uh, that way, you know, even if the current, you know, outbreak subsides, you know, you'll be able to prevent it if it looks like it's coming up in the future. Um, again, as we talked about before, generally mild disease, but this microcephaly complication is a, a very, very big deal. So that, that merits um, vaccine work to be able to prevent. The other challenge we saw with the development of, of drugs and vaccines for Ebola was that as the number of cases subsided, it was difficult to do a clinical trial. Is that going to be a problem here? You know, clinical trial volunteers, you know, they're, they're, it's an interesting topic. You know, there's some, you know, disease types, vaccine types, drug types that attract more participation than others. But I think that because Zika involves, um, you know, babies and, 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 you know, fetal development and, you know, the outcome of a, of a healthy pregnancy, uh, and that there's a, you know, a, a potential method of transmission beyond mosquitoes, you know, the, the sexual component to it, I think will uh, sustain some interest. Uh, you know, there'll be a lot of motivated people that will want to make a difference in this case, you know, e even after the outbreak subsides. Well, we're seeing a growing threat from zoonetic diseases, these tropical diseases that move from animal or insect vectors now becoming more present in the United States. West Nile virus, chikungunya, dengue. What's driving these changes? Well, you know, there's a couple, that's a good question. There's a couple of ways to look at it. You know, from, from one perspective, you know, things that we consider tropical diseases or limited to tropical areas now, you know, two examples, maybe yellow fever and malaria used to be, you know, quite regular in North America, uh, in the United States. You know, I live very close to Washington, D.C., and that was a hotspot for malaria back in the day. And, you know, in, in getting ready for this discussion, I looked up a bit about yellow fever outbreaks, and there were yellow fever outbreaks, I mean, this is centuries ago, but, you know, in Philadelphia, so that, which is not a very tropical place. Uh, so, but through public health measures and mosquito control and development of cities and the reduction of swamp areas and other methods where mosquitoes propagate, you know, that a lot of places got that geographic regions got their mosquito-borne insect um, viruses under control. Uh, but it's a big world, and there's a lot of places geographically where that's still a challenge, uh, and a lot of those happen to be in the tropics. Um, other diseases like West Nile, uh, came here years ago, uh, and it took hold, uh, and dengue's moving around. Uh, it, it requires, particularly for the mosquito-borne viruses, the virus has to find a way into a new geographic area, and it has to find a suitable mosquito species to take hold of it. So you have, uh, you know, that may be accidentally permissible. It may just find a new mosquito that it is okay living in, right? And that, that was one area where it could take hold. Uh, another thing, due to environmental changes and species changes and changes in the mosquitoes themselves, they're able to get places where they've not been before. And then certainly the world uh, is a lot smaller place than it used to be, so people are traveling more often uh, in and out of endemic areas. So there's always, uh, travelers can get these diseases and there's always a risk of uh, them bringing them back or you know, or even if, even if those cases can be sequestered and, and mitigated, uh, there's always a chance that, that 
the viruses just sort of march across the world. And, and we've seen that with diseases like chikungunya and dengue, where they've um, sort of erupted in remote areas of the world, but, but sort of steadily, almost systematically, moved from one island, one continent, one country to another. Uh, and, and, and then next thing you know, they're, they're global. Um, so a lot of that could be opportunity-based, definition-based. Things are tropical because they've, they've, they've not had the chance. Uh, and, and certainly viral or any sort of disease migration probably falls and almost certainly falls under general ecology principles. But a lot of the, the factors related to opportunity environment uh, that infect animal species uh, could still have a, a, a meaning, meaningful interpretation for viruses. So if you take a, uh, a an animal that lives on on a, on a continent and ask how it got to a remote island, uh, well, if it's a bird, that's maybe not hard to understand. But if it's a land-based creature like an iguana or a turtle or a, or a non-human primate or a monkey, and it got to an island, uh, that's a more curious problem. Uh, and, and you couldn't just get one; they had to be pairs. They had to swim, or get blown over by a storm, or float on a on a tree, or you know, however these these things happen. Uh, given enough time and enough chances of trying, sooner or later things just migrate. Um, that that's been the way of the world forever. Even even humans have done this, migrating out of Africa, and even thousands of years ago managed to fashion or dig out canoes and, and get to remote islands. It's, it's to borrow a line out of Jurassic Park, life finds a way. Um, so no one ever likes it when an invasive species or, or a new type of infection, uh, and it always seems kind of remarkable, but it's the way of the world, the way that nature conducts its business. As these diseases become greater threats, do we need to take them more seriously? What, what kind of strategies need to be put in place? Do we need to think differently about monitoring these diseases? And, and do we need to rethink investment in prevention and treatment of them? Yeah, very important. Great question, too. And, and that, that brings up the, the problem of, of you know, limited resources, right? So you, you always have to try to make do with less um, or try to do more with less. Um, you, you'd like to be able to treat every disease as if it was the highest priority, uh, but then you just up, end up making a, you know, even even higher priority, right? Uh, it's all important and it all needs to be looked at. I, I think the way to manage it, in my opinion, is to be very on top of surveillance and communication, you know, to be constantly monitoring for new outbreaks and, you know, their impact. Are they different than they've been in the past? Is it, is it, is it a change in what we've seen previously, like, like Zika and the microcephaly? And how do we uh, need to react to that? And then, you know, with the surveillance comes, you know, the need for reporting and communication. It may be, you know, one thing just for a, you know, remote geographical region to be watching for what happened, um, but that needs to be reported out so the rest of the world could be aware and then start responding. Um, you know, flu is a great model for that. You know, we know how bad flu can be. Uh, we know that even in mild years, it's still a serious disease. And then there's outbreak years or pandemic years where you've got a worse strain or set of strains that increase the problem. Uh, but the world is very good about monitoring for new flu outbreaks uh, and then communicating that globally. Uh, I don't think the world is bad at new outbreaks like Zika. Uh, I think the response to that and, and Ebola too was pretty good. Um, but uh, it, it can, you know, there's always room for improvement and there's always room for better, more coordinated responses. And I think with each one, that occurs, you know, the, the overall global effort gets better, which is important. 
Jim Panucci, Director for Infectious Disease Research at Southern Research. Jim, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Dan. It was great. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.